He is called also faithful and true. And as we study the Antichrist, we will see he is just the opposite. He is unfaithful and he is untrue because he is Satan's man and the, and the devil comes only to speak lies. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've begun a look at the four horsemen of the apocalypse in our study of the Revelation. We've seen these horsemen identified in chapter 6 as they are revealed one by one through the unraveling of a seven-sealed scroll. In our previous study, we noted that the first horse is a white horse, and his rider is the Antichrist. Today, we'll begin looking at the red horse and its rider, who is war. But before we get ahead of ourselves, Dr. Brogy begins by noting that following the rapture of the church, the majority of tribulation activity will take place in the Middle East. Now, the Bible predicts that at the end of time, most of the turmoil will center around the nation of Israel. It's not by accident that just as God used the Jewish people to bring the first coming of the Messiah, He will use them to bring about the second coming of the Messiah. But what is so sad is now in our day, that's become a minority opinion in the last 50 years. Virtually every, every evangelical 50 years ago would say, no, God's going to use Israel to bring about the second coming. And now it's very popular to say that the church is the new Israel. And there's almost an anti-Semitic spirit that is even feeding the culture. But in Daniel 9, this Antichrist is described. Let me read it to you. Daniel 9, verses 26 and 27. It's a prophecy. And by the way, if you weren't with us in our series on Daniel, if you can't review the whole book, you might want to at least listen to Daniel 9. I did four hours of teaching out of Daniel 9. And Daniel 9 is very important because it's a schematic that will guide you through the book of Revelation, especially verses beginning in verse 24. But here in 9.26, he says, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood, even to the end that there will be war, desolations are determined. God predicts in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, 490 years of Israel's history. And he breaks it down. He gives the big schematic in verse 24. Here's what's going to happen in 490 years. Then in verse 25, he says, here's what's going to happen in the first 483 years. And then between verse 25 and 26, there's a gap of time. We call it the church age. God right now is building His church. And if you were with us in our study of Daniel, we saw numerous examples sprinkled all the way through the Old Testament and even through the teachings of our Savior where in a single verse of Scripture or sometimes between two verses of Scripture, there is a gap of time. One dealing with the first coming, the second after the gap dealing with the second coming. And so verse 26 predicts the, the time frame in which Messiah will be cut off. In Daniel 9, God predicts that there is going to be a decree given by a king to rebuild the temple in the city of Jerusalem. We know that date. You can look it up in the Encyclopedia Britannica. And then God gives us the exact number of years in days by which Messiah will come and present himself to Israel. 
It brings us to April the 6th, 32 AD, where Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. We call it Palm Sunday. And after that event, he says in this verse that the Messiah will be cut off. It is a reference to the Messiah's death. And indeed, the Lord Jesus was cut off just a few days later in that week. And then he tells us that the people of the prince who is to come will destroy both the city and the sanctuary. So Messiah is cut off. He's crucified. And we know we're in a gap of time just by reading that because the prophecy that follows is something that Jesus spoke of that Daniel wrote of. Remember that time when Jesus wept over Jerusalem? Let me read it to you. For the days will come upon you, upon you, Jerusalem, when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Messiah is cut off. 38 years later, Titus Vespucian in 70 AD fulfills this prophecy. They begin the siege on the city of Jerusalem in 67 AD. In 70 AD, they win. And in the process, one million Jewish people are slaughtered, most of whom are crucified. They crucified so many people, they couldn't find any trees in the city of Jerusalem and its surroundings in order to execute any more people. Uh, a handful of Jewish people were left. In 132 to 135, there's another small rebellion with those who few that are left. It's called the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. And at that point, Rome comes down for the final crushing, and the, and the government of Rome makes it illegal for a Jew to live in Israel. And at that point, the emperor of Rome, Hadrian, renames Israel. He calls it at that point, Palestine. It's a play on words from one of Israel's greatest uh, enemies, the Philistines. And so they have this word that the, it's a little difficult for one culture to say, and so they, they end up calling it Palestine. I won't go into all the Germanics of it, but anyway, they call it Palestine. And so we have a group of people today that call themselves the Palestinians. There's no such people. There's no such people. It was a made-up word in 1967. And so some people wanting Israel off of their piece of property said, this is our land, we are the Palestinian people. Now, if you've ever read the uh, constitution of the PLO or Hamas, be good reading this afternoon if you don't have anything to do, but there's some paragraphs in there that basically say, Israel is our enemy, we want Israel swept off the land and driven into the sea. And you wonder why the Jewish people don't trust the Palestinians, so to speak, as they call themselves, because in their own constitutions, they say, we don't want them to exist. So here's these prophecies. Messiah is going to be cut off. The city and the sanctuary are going to be destroyed. And that's precisely what happened. Titus comes in. He conquers the place. One of the seven great wonders of the first century world, depending on whose list you're reading, but on most lists, it's the temple. It's absolutely magnificent. Herod the Great began to build it in his lifetime, and its construction went all the way almost until its destruction in 70 AD. 
It was breathtaking. And so Titus said, don't destroy the temple. Well, the city caught fire, and I don't know if it was accidental or on purpose, but the temple was burned. The temple, as God described it and required it, was covered all over in gold. And the gold began to melt in the fire, and it went down between the rocks. And the Romans, entitled to the spoils of war, began to pry apart every single rock to get the gold. And Jesus' word was fulfilled. Not one stone would remain upon the other. If you go to Israel today, you'll see the retaining wall and the temple sat on the top, but you will see many of the old temple stones cast over to the side, and it's not by accident. You have this final rebellion, the Bar Kokhba, making it illegal for Jews to be there. Well, understand, as we move into the 19th century, there are some Orthodox Jews who say God says in His Word that we should own Israel. And so some Jews, small in number, began to migrate in the late 19th century to Israel. Here's some demographics in terms of population. In 1880, the first record we have of Jewish people living in Israel, there's approximately 25,000 Jewish people. God uses the evil of men sometimes to praise Him. What some people mean for evil, God means for good. Hitler, who's born in Austria, makes his way to Germany, becomes a German politician. He wants the total annihilation of the Jews. And the Jews are not welcomed anywhere. A boatload of some 900 Jewish people, you can see the letter in both the Holocaust Museum in D.C. and in Israel, they're turned away by our own government, by our own president. And most of them go back to the gas chambers having no place and no country by which they are welcomed, many of the Jews flee to Israel. And so in 1948, what Hitler meant for evil, God meant for good, there are 600,000 Jews living there. And on May 14, 1948, they win their independence in spite of the fact that they are surrounded by 100 million Arabs. And God reestablishes the nation. Today, there's only about... 12, maybe 13 million Jews on the whole planet. There's 6.42 million Jews living there. And even the anti-Semitism of the last five years continues to bring them. In France, in the last two years, more and more Jews are hated. They're going to Israel. And even in the last few weeks, the Jewish people have expressed their concern over what's happening in Germany. And many are fleeing from Western Europe back to Israel. Is this accidental? No, this is providential. It's significant because God says that this will happen at the end of time. Let me read a couple of texts. Isaiah 45, God is speaking. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. The prophet Ezekiel said this. And if you read these texts, they are speaking about the end of time. We've learned two critical theological terms concerning God's prophetic schedule. One is last days. Last days, the last days began on the day of Pentecost. Peter tells that us that in Acts 2. We've been in the last days since Pentecost. What that means is that there's never, ever been in the history of the church anything that has ever needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to come back. 
The New Testament teaches the imminent return of Jesus, that he could have come back 10 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. And then any remaining prophecy would be fulfilled after the rapture of the church, culminating in the second coming. But think about what happened and how things unfolded. Israel was annihilated as a people virtually in 70 AD. The rest were expelled from the land. And yet Daniel 9, 27 tells us that the Antichrist is going to come and he's going to make a covenant. To have a covenant, you've got to have people there. You have to have Jewish people. So there's not only the term the last days, and I believe we're in the last of the last days, but there's a second term that refers to the end of time. It's associated not with the rapture, but with the second coming. It's called the latter times or the latter days. And so God, by these prophets, speaks about what will happen in the latter days prior to the second coming. Listen to what Ezekiel says. Therefore, say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. Moses said this, speaking of the end of time, if you're outcasts or at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back into the land which your fathers possessed. And so here in Daniel 9, 27, and he, speaking of the prince who's to come, will make a firm covenant with the many, the term the many, it's articular in the Hebrew, is reflected in the NASB, refers to the Jewish people throughout the book of Daniel. The many is the Jewish people. He will make a firm covenant with the many, with the Jewish people, for one week. Now, if you remember, when we studied Daniel 9, the term week in the Hebrew mind can mean one of two things. In our Western mind, we just typically think of a week of days. So when we say the word week, we think of seven days. But in the Hebrew mind, there's not only a week of days, but a week of years. So if you say a week, you could mean seven days, or you could mean seven years. And I gave illustrations from the Scripture, like Jacob, who wanted Rachel to be his wife, and, and Laban tricked him, and, and so Laban said, you can work another week, meaning another seven years, and he goes ahead and he's able to take Rachel as well. In either case, we saw contextually that this was not a week of days, but a week of years, God's plan for the Jewish people for 490 years. He tells us what took place in the first 483 years. It's now history from our perspective, and there's still one week left, seven years left. And so in the book of Daniel and in the Revelation, you will read of this seven-year period. For instance, in Daniel 7.25, they will be given, the Jewish people will be given into his hand, the Antichrist, for a time, times, and half a time. That refers to three and a half years. And again, if that's new to you, go back and listen. Go to searchthescriptures.org, download that sermon. So here's some terms you're going to see in Daniel and in Revelation. Time, times, and half a times. Three and a half years in Daniel 9.27, Daniel 12.7. 42 months in Revelation 11, Revelation 13. Or 1,260 days in Revelation 11 and Daniel 12. Seven-year period divided into two halves, 1,260 days, 42 months, 1,260 days, 42 months. Now, the whole time frame is called the Great Tribulation in Revelation 6. We'll get to that before we're done, or Revelation 7, excuse me. But something happens at the midpoint of the tribulation that will turn the Great Tribulation into Greater Tribulation. 
And all hell is going to break loose when that event takes place in the middle. And we will see that Jesus will document this for you. This is not just one pastor's understanding of it. We will go to the words of Jesus and we will see in the Olivet Discourse how the same schematic in Matthew 24 perfectly follows what we're going to read in these chapters here in the Revelation. And so, Daniel 9.27 predicts what John calls the white horse rider. And he, the prince who is to come, will make a firm covenant for one week, for seven years with the many, with the Jewish people. Now, if you were here last week, we looked at the first rider, the rider on the white horse. And he is to be distinguished, really, from one that we might call the fifth rider of the apocalypse. There are five riders in the apocalypse. The four found here in chapter 6, the fifth found in Revelation 19. The horseman in Revelation 6 carries a bow without arrows. He comes as a man of peace with the threat of war to conquer, but it's a bloodless victory. Jesus comes back with a sword, and he will execute wrath with his angels in flaming fire. The rider in Revelation 6 wears a crown. It's the word Stephanos. We saw that that was used of the, the, the laurel wreath that a person would receive as they participated in the Greek and Isthmian games that would fade away. But Jesus comes back not with a crown singular, but in some of your translations, crowns plural, but it's actually diadem. It's a different word, diadems. He comes back wearing diadems. And the diadem was a crown of a king. And he's no ordinary king. The Antichrist comes and he brings three and a half years of peace, as Daniel documents for us, as Revelation will illustrate for us. The man, the God-man in Revelation 19, he comes and he brings a thousand years of peace. Um, in Revelation 6.2, in some of your English texts, he is simply called a rider. Literally, the Greek says, as the NASB says, him who sat. And so some just interpret it and call him a rider. Him who sat. But the one on the horse in Revelation 19 is given a title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is not a false Christ. He is the true Christ. He is the one who will rule and reign. He is called also faithful and true. And as we study the Antichrist, we will see he is just the opposite. He is unfaithful and he is untrue because he is Satan's man and, this, and the devil comes only to speak lies. And then finally, the Antichrist will bring about the star of the tribulation where Jesus will bring in his millennial kingdom, which will return, turn into his eternal kingdom that will never end forever and ever and ever. All right, you with me? Let's read our text now. Revelation 6 verse 1, then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a loud voice of thunder, come. I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come. And another, a red horse went out and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth and that men would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. 
When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with the famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. So God's judgments upon an unbelieving world begins with the opening of the first of seven seals, and they progressively get worse. We will see here in Revelation 6, uh, 13 times over, a third of the world, a third of this, a third of that that's damaged. When we come to the trumpet judgments, we will see it change to a quarter. They're not the same judgments, though there are common characteristics in both. And when we come to the bold judgments, it will encompass the entire planet in every respect. Now, when we open the book of Revelation, we read this in Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is not the revelation of John the divine as some old King James translations rendered it. Most don't do that anymore. This is not the revelation of John. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's not the book of revelations. It's revelation singular. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ given to him, given to Jesus. It's not given to John. It's initially given to Jesus. In what sense? He's the omniscient God. He's not learning anything new. It's given to him as we will see and that he owns it. He owns this revelation and all that is going to unfold in the seven plus years leading up to his second coming. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his bond servants, that's us. If you've been born again, you're called a slave of God. You're one of Jesus's bond servants. The things that must soon take place. Now, the careful reader, especially living not in 95 AD, but in 2,000 plus years later, we'll simply ask, what do you mean by soon? This revelation was given to John about 2,000 years ago. Very little seemingly has taken place. So what do you mean by soon? And we saw that the word soon, quickly, suddenly, depending on your English Bible, is the word taxis. It's used a number of times all the way through Revelation. And it is used to describe something that happens quickly, not so much the length of time, but the speed of time. And so from the word taxis, we get our word tachometer. Some of you in the 70s would strap a big tachometer up on the, uh, before they built them into cars, up on uh, your, your uh, in front of your steering wheel, remember? Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. They, they, they used to put these tachometers up there and suppose Supposedly, it was a piece of speed equipment. And guys who had slow cars, who had no horsepower, they'd still put them up there. I guess it made them feel good. But in either case, once these judgments begin, once the door in heaven is open, very quickly, suddenly, soon, the seal, the trumpet, and the bowl judgments, STB, you know what STS is? Search the scriptures. Jesus said, search the scriptures because they reveal me. This is STB, seal. Trumpet, bowl judgments. And they happen very, very quickly. They unfold. And once they unfold, it happens incredibly fast. It will take your breath away. Now, as this next chart shows, if you'll bring it up, I think, or what do we have? Bring it up. Yeah, there we go. Remember now, here are these horsemen. 
and they take place in the first three and a half years. All four horsemen, and not just that, the first six seals are going to happen in the first three and a half years. And the seventh seal, when that's opened, that's going to be opened in response to an event that happens dead center in the seven years, and that will bring the trumpet in bold judgments that are going to follow. Um, so, Keep that in mind. The schematic's very important. Hold your finger here for just a second. Uh, let me read verse 4. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 5 for a moment. And as you're turning there, I'm going to read verse 4. It says, And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. So when the second seal is open and the horse, the man on the red horse is loosed, things really get ugly. And by the way, remember, Antichrist comes first. He comes with a bow without any arrows. He comes as a man of peace. But the peace is short-lived, and things get ugly very, very fast. Here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, look, if you will, at verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. You remember the day of the Lord? That's an important phrase in the Bible. Whenever the word day in Hebrew or Greek is accompanied with a number next to it, it's referring to a literal, actual 24-hour day. No exceptions. So when you come into the Old Testament, for instance, there are over 465 times when the word yom, day, is accompanied with a number, and no one debates, oh, that's an actual 24-hour day. But when we come to the opening chapters of Genesis and you have a number with the Hebrew word day, day one, day two, day three, not to mention the further defining phrase evening and morning, Christians today say, well, that doesn't mean a 24-hour day. That must mean long periods of time. And they want the day of the Lord to fit with modern day science. And that's dangerous. God has the final word, not man. And so for nearly 1900 years, all born again Christians throughout church history said the world was made in six literal days. Why do we believe that? Not only because the Bible plainly says it, but God gave us divine commentary through Moses in Exodus 20. He said in six days, God made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. Therefore, you are to work six literal days, and on the seventh day you are to rest. So God makes an analogy. He describes through Moses that these are real days. But you see, the world wants you to think that we've been around for billions and billions of years, and we got billions of billions of years to go. Why does the world want you to think that? Because if this thing has been going on forever, there's no real accountability. We're not going to meet the living God where we will have to give an account. God is not going to come back anytime soon. He's not going to intervene in human history because he hasn't intervened in billions of years, not to mention some say he didn't even create the world. And then foolish Christians say God used the process of evolution to create the world, which goes against everything in Scripture because you have death before the creation. Yeah, I mean, excuse me, you have death before sin enters into the world. God is very clear. Now, the term the day of the Lord, no number, is like the phrase in English, what we call the day of your youth. You weren't a youth for 24 hours. It was a period of time. And the day of the Lord is used in the Old Testament to describe a brilliantly beautiful time or an absolutely horrible time, depending which prophet you're reading. 
because the day of the Lord in the Old Testament mimics a biblical day. To listen again to today's message in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV15, titled The Red Horse of Destruction. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll conclude our look at the Red Horse of Destruction. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.